Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 137. Today's passage, although it's shorter, does have some jarring imagery that may be difficult for some to hear. So please prepare your hearts accordingly. Hear the word of the Lord. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You won't hear this psalm read at the grave site of a loved one. You won't hear parents whisper this to their kids as they tuck them in at night. You won't hear it quoted at a wedding as lovers now commit to a vow of lifelong love at a wedding. You won't, you won't even hear it cited at a convocation with a room full of graduates. And for good reason. Now, I mean, no matter how many times I hear those last two lines, they always make my hair stand on end. And for many of us in here, we may be asking the question, this is in the Bible? Really? <laughs> and some of us are responding that way. <laughs> well, look, there's no way around it. There's no way around it. This passage, this prayer, this psalm is found in the God-inspired prayers of Scripture, and it rubs us the wrong way. But why? Because it didn't rub the Jewish people the wrong way, and it doesn't rub many in various cultures the wrong way. So why does it for us as 21st century modern Westerners, when we hear this read, it sounds like nails on a chalkboard. What's going on? Is it because we as a modern culture have finally progressed past this kind of barbarism? Not quite. I think below all of our Midwestern politeness, deep below the surface, it's because we have no idea what to do with our anger. We have no idea to do, what to do with our anger. We talk a lot about loss and grief and pain, and we should, but what do we do with our anger? Anger. The anger for some in this room that's explosive. Maybe you've had a friend or a loved one who's described you as someone who has a short fuse. Maybe others in this room, instead of it exploding outward, it implodes and you turn your anger towards yourself and it transforms into depression. But I think more common almost for most in this room 
is that we take our anger and we bottle it up. Kind of like a Coca-Cola bottle, two liter when you're walking home and you accidentally drop it and it's all shook up. Instead of it exploding, you let out a little bit of steam with a passive-aggressive email here. You intentionally don't email that coworker when they leave the office because you want them to pay, right? Our anger, it terrifies us, so we keep it under wraps, hidden behind a warm smile, but not our psalmist. Now, many of us and most of us will never experience what the psalmist went through that caused him to pray this prayer. And that's something that we should praise God about. But there are many in our city and possibly and definitely globally who can resonate with the words of this prayer. But hear me, regardless of where you find yourself this morning, we all have a lot to learn when it comes to navigating our anger. If you're new this morning, my name's Gabe Coyle. And over the past seven weeks, We've been journeying through the landscape of prayer, using the Psalms as our guide. We've gone to the heights of praise, and we've gone down to the valleys of lament, and now the Psalms are going to guide us to an unlikely place, the battlefield, the place of enemies and violence. I mean, this is prayer in the real world, a broken world with really radical evil. The kind of evil of murder, genocide, and rape that breaks our hearts and gets our blood boiling. So often prayer, it brings us to our knees, but this kind of prayer, it shoots us up to our feet, shouting for justice with fire in our eyes. And in these raw words of Psalm 137, we hear God's invitation to come pray where we are, not where we should be, And even when our anger takes focus in relationships and morphs into hate, we hear the invitation all the same. Theologian Eugene Peterson, when he's meditating on this particular psalm, writes, Our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. It's better to pray badly than to not pray at all. (laughs) Is that true, really? Give God your anger? Give him your hate? Yes. And here's why. And here's a point that I'm going to come to time and time again, something the psalmist understands that we rarely get in our culture. And that's God will do better things with our anger than we will. God will do better things with our anger than we will. And if that's true, well, then how on earth do we hand it over? Well, as we walk through Psalm 137 this morning, we're going to be given guidance. And it's not the kind of guidance that you take one step to the next stepping stone to the next stepping stone. This is training for battle. And to fight the good fight in a broken world, we need to first learn to own our anger, give your anger to God, and then let him turn your anger to praise. Okay? Because God will do better things with our anger than we will. If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Psalm 137? If you're using one of the community Bibles, it's found on page number 521. And to really understand this prayer, we need to understand the context, okay? In 586 BC, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, brought all of his troops and with the help of a neighboring country called Edom, completely ransacked Jerusalem. I mean, in a brutal attack. The walls of Jerusalem were left to rubble and snatching babies out of the arms of Israeli mothers, they bashed them against the rocks until their carcasses littered the path. 
I mean, this makes Guantanamo Bay look like a daycare center. Or this is the kind of veterans or Vietnam flashback style. This is rough. And I don't want you to miss that all of this brutality is strategic. You see, Babylon was sending a message to all the other countries and neighboring towns that it reigns over that if you're even thinking about rebelling, we're going to do this to you too. And if the Israelites, those that did live after this attack, if you want to call it living, they were then, a majority of them, taken on exile for the long walk from Jerusalem to Babylon to be buried and to die in a foreign land. And that's where we find our psalmist. By the waters of Babylon, he says. And he hangs up his musical instruments. He sits down and he just begins to weep. Broken over the memories of his home, of Zion, of his children. And the ones who destroyed his home the ones who had brutally killed some of his loved ones, now ask him to sing some of those songs. Hey, why don't you sing us some of those songs of that God you worship? You know that God you said who'd always take care of you? Oh, yeah, the one we just obliterated his temple. Yeah, why don't you sing some of those songs of how invincible Zion is, the city we just leveled? Sing, slave, sing. And to be honest with you, I have tried so hard to enter into this world that the psalmist is living. And the, the further I go in, the more I feel like it's a dark foreign land I can only see from afar. It's never a land you get to choose to enter. It's always a land that's chosen for you and God forbid you find yourself there. The closest I can come to even fathoming what this might be like is I I remember a clip from the movie 12 Years a Slave. A clip where you begin to get a glimpse of this brokenness and this anger. It's an inspiring and incredible true story uh, of life pre-Civil War in the United States where Solomon Northrup, a free black man who's also a phenomenal violinist living in upstate New York, is illegally abducted and sold into slavery in the South. In his struggle to stay alive, he also fights to keep his dignity, even when his captors command him to sing songs and to play songs of celebration. Let's watch together.
psalmist responds, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's how we read it, isn't it? But really, it's how long shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's anger. He's angry, and every bit of his anger is legitimate. Every bit of it. How is that possible? I mean, shouldn't knowing God's great love towards us turn every enraging thought towards the others into this, well, we're supposed to love everybody and everybody get along? No. No. For one, God loves his world so much that he gets angry when it's threatened. Is he long-suffering? Is he patient? Yes. Yes. But does he get angry at prostitution? Does he get white hot with righteous indignation at abuse, at slavery, at genocide? Of course he does. And here's the thing. He never loses control of his anger, but it's always rightly purposed towards his divine and good will. That's unlike us, isn't it? I want you to think about this one. When someone you love is threatened, when someone you love is charged and attacked, what do you do? You get angry and you stand up and you seek to defend, to protect. It's a natural reaction. We cry out, where's justice? We should be angry at evil in every one of its forms. Never make a friend with evil. Because you won't also be a friend of Jesus. You know, it's appropriate to have anger. We saw this in Psalm 4, and it's actually echoed by the Apostle Paul. To be angry and do not sin. Anger in and of itself is not sin, but there is a kind of anger that is sin. And I don't care who you are this morning. In our culture, I can almost guarantee that every one of us in here is angrier than you think you are. And if you continue to ignore your anger, it is going to shock you and surprise you as it comes out on the dog who continues to take whatever he takes, your socks, your shoes. It's going to come out in your fellow coworkers. It's going to come out in your spouse and your friend who shows up five minutes late to happy hour and you don't know why you're exploding. Instead, we need to take a note from the psalmist and we need to own our anger. Own your anger. All of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly... Now, to be sure, there are times we all get mad at the wrong things, okay? I get impatient with my kids. I get frustrated with my spouse. I get ticked off in traffic. I used to know this guy who put golf balls in his glove compartment. You know where this is going, maybe. And somebody would cut him off. And I remember him telling me this. He would zoom around, get in front of them, open his sunroof, and four. And I just thought, (laughs) you're psycho, you know? So you may not be psycho in here, but we've all got issues with anger. You shoot that quick scathing email without even thinking and go, oh no, what did I do? You beat down on your boss in some imaginary conversation the next morning when you're in shower. You look great, you know, because he didn't give you that shift you wanted or that client you thought you deserved. You know, this isn't the kind of anger that the psalmist has here. This is the kind of anger that's for the wrong reasons. And here's why it's for the wrong reasons. It's because you're at the center and you have no concern of the others around you. It's self-centered anger. Not self-care, that's also important, but self-centered anger. 
such that when, even when you're not wronged, but you happen to be inconvenienced, it feels like the same thing. Because you're at the center. It may not be a legitimate wrong, but it rubbed you the wrong way. This kind of anger, it misses the mark. This is what we use and describe sin as, missing the mark. But even still here, we're called to own our anger, to own our anger. Otherwise, it's going to leak out where we least expect it. Going back to that Coca-Cola illustration, somebody's going to come up to you just hoping to get a drink, and they're going to twist the top, and boom, you're going to explode. But there are also plenty of times when we should get angry when we don't get angry. Plenty of times when we should get angry when we actually don't. You see, anger is the opposite of delight. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to both. Delight is enjoying God's good world as he's designed it. Anger is when we see God's good world destroyed. And we respond accordingly. When we see God's glory brought through the mud when we see the dehumanizing effects of evil infiltrating God's good world, we should be angry. We should be angry when the dignity of human life is ignored, even when it's legal. And I'm going to talk to you, church, for just a second, all right? Okay, we're going to get real. Not that we aren't real other times. We're going to get real, real right now, okay? Here's the deal. Everything in Babylon did was actually legal in their particular moral code and cultural setup. But it doesn't mean it was just. Legality does not equate permissibility or morality. Planned Parenthood may be legally able to perform abortions and do some other things that these videos have been trying to navigate. And there's a lot of debate on what's going on with all of that. But here's the deal. Killing these babies and also the emotional repercussions that are on these women should get us angry. When we hear about the injustice that still pervades our justice system and has been behind so much of the police brutality that we've continued to hear about, it should get us angry such that we stand next to our black and Hispanic brothers and sisters. When we hear about the lack of accreditation in the KCMO's public school system, we should get angry, not because we have to now figure out how to pay for private school, but because the poor and the marginalized don't have that as an option and are stuck with subpar education which will impact the trajectories of their opportunities and so the rest of their life. It's not about inconvenience. It's about wrong, injustice. We should get angry. You know, some of us in here are never angry, and we see that as a virtue. Aren't you an angel? You're not called to be an angel. You're not created an angel. You're a human being made in the image of God who gets angry at injustice. And hear this this morning, angels aren't really angels. What do I mean by that? Most of the time when angels show up in scripture, they're warriors. They're carrying swords. They're at the front of God's army, not standing on the side giving someone a back rub. I'm sorry, but we we do this. They become messengers of proclamation of how God's going to bring down the structures of injustice through his savior, Jesus, how he's going to obliterate oppressive regimes. This is not something we just stand by the side and say, aren't we supposed to be like angels? Of course not. Are we here at a funeral one day? Now he's up there with his wings. No, 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 no. We don't find that in scripture. That's some weird cultural manipulation of some fairy tale. 
And hear me, if you're never angry at evil, ever, it's probably because you just don't like the good that much. You just don't like the good that much. You remember from last week, for those of you here, and if you weren't, it's up on the podcast. In Psalm 104, the psalmist, he spends 34 verses, 34 verses praising God for his good work and his good world. And then the last verse comes out of nowhere. God, get rid of the sinners and the wicked. What? This is supposed to be a praise psalm. He's so enraptured with the good and God's good work that anything that comes to destroy God's good design, he wants it out of the picture. He's in love with what God is doing. He's in love with who God is. And anything that tries to destroy that needs to be gone. He loves the good. You see, if you're never angry, don't act like you're pious. Instead, it just probably means you're indifferent. And indifferent is not a place we're called to be. And you may even see angry people on the news and write them off thinking they're blowing something out of proportion because that's what the news does. That's how it raises its ratings. Well, hear me. There are moments of evil in our world that call to a certain proportion of anger. Own your anger. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And once you've done that, then give your anger to God. Own your anger, then give your anger to God because he's big enough, he's strong, strong enough to carry it. We aren't. You see, at the peak of his anger here in Psalm 137, verse 7, the psalmist addresses God directly. Remember, O Lord. And he doesn't come, you know, as if he's venting to a friend. He's addressing the judge of the world. He owns his anger. He doesn't ignore it, but he doesn't hide from God and now calls out to him, Remember, O Lord, Edom. Remember against Edom. And then in verse 8, O daughter of Babylon. You see, the word remember, whenever we find it in Scripture, it's more than just cognitively storing away information for later, which is what we often think in our culture. The word remember means act. (laughs) I remember and therefore I act upon what I now remember. Remember what Edom has done, that you may act in accordance and make all wrongs right. Fix this. God, I can't. I'm powerless, the psalmist is saying. I need you to do this. You have to remember The psalmist, he doesn't ask for divine empowerment to bring about vengeance. There's an admittance that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I mean, this is the prayer of the vulnerable, the powerless, the weak, the disenfranchised, the slave, the faithful. But what about you and me this morning? To say that we're in this exact same boat would be a lie. Because honestly, most of us in this room have a ton more influence, wealth, and power, not only globally, but even locally to bring about change. So how does this impact us? Well, one of the major lessons I think that we can learn from this prayer is that once we've owned our anger, no matter your station in life, we still need to learn that I am angry, and pray this, I am angry, what has happened is wrong, but God, you're still the ultimate judge. I'm angry. That right there is wrong, but you're still the ultimate judge. Now, 
One of the big dangers with all of this is we slowly have the possibility to enter into this privatized faith and so back away from the public square and so forego anger. That's not what this psalmist is calling us to. Instead, it's a much more complex act of faith to still let God be judge and so let our prayers be shaping our anger now. When we bring it to him, he transforms it. He infuses it. He never leaves what we've given him in prayer the way it was before. And the psalmist knows that only God has the ability, the wisdom, and the right to be the perfect judge. You know, Dr. Estes, he was one of my Bible professors. He was a mentor of mine, and he's actually one of the leading scholars in Psalms. And he writes in his commentary, by placing the problems into God's hands, the believer avoids the real danger of righteous indignation degenerating into mere viciousness. Anger is righteous when it is surrendered. Anger is righteous when it is surrendered. Have you given your anger to God? And how do we decipher whether we've genuinely handed it over? It's distinguished in whether we're asking for vengeance or for God's judgment. Whether we're asking for vengeance or we're asking for God's judgment. And it may sound like I'm splitting hairs, but this is drastically different. What's the difference? When we ask for vengeance, we're asking that we can take things in our own hands. God, I want control. Yeah, you had your chance. Now it's my time. It's my turn, and I'm going to do it the way I think it should be done. And when we step into the place of vengeance, it will eat at your soul and it will consume you until all that's left is bitterness. Because vengeance is a chasing after the wind. The more you consume, the more you'll actually become the very thing you sought to destroy. But asking for God's judgment, anger is still anger, but it learns to be patient and wait on God. That doesn't mean inactivity. Patience and waiting on God never meant a lack of activity, but it does describe a posture in which we now approach this. Because there's this trust that God knows more than I do, that he's more righteous than I, than I am, that he will bring things out in his perfect timing, because in our lives there are so many complex interweaving relationships that for God to bring about his justice and care for all, It's not a simple one and done in our perfect timing. And his wisdom, he will fulfill his promises to all his people, not just one person. And when we wait on him, we trust him. And this actually begins to soothe the pulsating soul, not by eradicating anger, but in steering it with hope in God and his justice. But what about the psalmist? You know, I was wrestling through that even as I was making the distinction. Is the psalmist asking for vengeance here, though? Not God's judgment? I don't think so. I think he's asking for God's judgment. And for two reasons. First, this was the known practice of the ancient Near Eastern world, okay? You can't judge an ancient Near Eastern imagination of warfare by 21st century sensibilities. Don't, be, don't come to the text with a chronological snobbery as if we've got it way more figured out than they did. They were just as smart back then as we are today. Also, this is the language of war. 
This isn't the language of vengeance. This is the language of war that God would actually repay an eye for an eye. And here's the second point. What the psalmist was asking God to do was to fulfill what he'd already promised he would do in the book of Obadiah and in the book of Isaiah. He'd already promised judgment upon Edom and Babylon for their heinous crimes they'd brought against Israel. And hear me, for a majority of the people in the world who are oppressed, who are marginalized, this is their only source of hope, God's judgment from the bully and the human trafficker. This is their only source of hope from the person who oppresses the poor to the people who kill our brothers and sisters abroad or at home. If you don't believe that God is the judge, then you will take matters into your own hands. And quite frankly, if you don't believe that God will make it right in his perfect timing, then you should. And the political economist Karl Marx was right when he said religion is the opiate of the people who should be rising up. But I tend to think he's wrong. And Mirzlov Wolf, a survivor of the genocide in Bosnia, a theologian, he points to another way. And I think he's got the good experiential reality to come with some weight when he says what he says for those of us who have not undergone that level of pain and suffering. He goes on to say that belief in God's judgment is the only thing that can prevent retaliation. The only thing that stops the endless cycle of vengeance is trusting that God will judge. We don't understand God's judgment until we've experienced suffering until we found ourselves in the place of the vulnerable. One day his justice will be exercised perfectly and the moral arc of the universe will reach its peak and all wrongs will be made right. God will do better things with your anger than you will. So let's get real practical in how we navigate this psalm in our own prayer lives. Time and again, over the past seven weeks, we've said, pray the psalms. When you come to Psalm 137, that's the one we tend to go, and Psalm 138. Um, should we pray Psalm 137? Yes. With all of this context in mind, longing for God's judgment, knowing what the psalmist is requesting, and now this side of the cross coming with a new refrain at the end of our angry prayer. You see, Psalm 137 isn't the only prayer we're called to pray. It's not the end of the Psalter. The Psalms end with Psalm 150, with a climax of praise. And so does all of Scripture. So not only do we own our anger instead of trying to suppress it, not only then do we give it back to God instead of trying to carry it ourselves, but we also learn from the psalmist here The secret on how to turn your anger to praise. Turn your anger to praise. The psalmist, he really believes that God's going to do right by Zion. That those pains and that history and that injustice, that it won't be forgotten. And we see this here in the last two verses where the psalmist promises blessing on the one who brings about God's judgment the agent of God's judgment. And he knows it's not him. He knows he's not in the place of power, nor is he in the place of emotional stability to pursue right justice. 
instead of intense revenge. But who is this blessed one that the psalmist talks about? The book of Psalms doesn't leave us without a clue. Back in Psalm 2, we find this blessed one. God has placed his king on Zion, his son. And he will come, the psalm says, and break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see the similar similarity in the imagery. And then you get down to verse 12, and the psalmist calls out, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The vulnerable, the voiceless, the broken, find a covering in submitting to the right reign of God's good king, his son. But where is he? This is what the psalmist is crying out for. This is what so many of the psalms are calling for, is for God's presence to be remaining and permanent within Zion. Well, in the first century... God sent his son, who was very God of very God and fully man, Jesus Christ. And at the initiation of his redeeming work, we hear resounding from heaven, from God the Father, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And during his life, he carries out righteous indignation in flipping over tables, rebuking religious leaders, confronting his own disciples. He weeps over death. He becomes an active voice for the voiceless, a compassionate healer for the wounded, a provider for the hungry. And yet, when all of Israel was looking for their Messiah to come and to dash their enemies against the rocks, instead Jesus Christ came and himself was dashed against the rocks. Taking God's righteous judgment upon himself God's righteous judgment against the wicked upon himself. And this is the greatest scandal of Christianity. This is what Paul says time and time again is a stumbling block in his letters. Not only to the Jewish community who is looking for a Messiah to dash everybody else, but to so many across the globe. And while indeed there are real victims and there are real oppressors and those should not be overlooked, simultaneously before God we all stand condemned. God's justice shows no bias in that regards. We've all been mad at the wrong things at the wrong time and have played the role of the oppressor, whether it's active aggression or passive aggression. It's not our line of justice that we should be concerned about, but God's. And before his perfect standard, all fall short of his glory and find ourselves on the opposing side of God's good justice. But God must remain just. We need him to be just. Otherwise, chaos will reign forever. But simultaneously, he is the most merciful and he is more merciful than we are every day of the week. And so not only is God just, but as we read in Romans 3, he is also the justifier And so in sending Jesus Christ, he pays our penalty and he takes our place. And mind you, takes the place of our enemies. Now, does that mean we become passive in our battle against injustice and so forego anger? No. 
But instead, we can now come authentically with something that seemed impossible before, humble anger. Humble anger. Knowing that you and I are simultaneously a part of the problem and a part of the solution. Called to be God's agents of redemption in a broken world. And what if Jesus is called to love our enemies? What an interesting command. Because to love enemies, we must know who they are. To pray for enemies, we must be able to name them. It's not that we will now no longer have enemies. And also we can step into this command with our eyes wide open, knowing that love towards our enemies is usually the last thing our enemies want. And when we give love towards enemies, it usually redoubles their fury. And we may find ourselves following quite literally in the footsteps of Jesus and being crucified by our enemies. This is our calling of sacrifice. But it doesn't damper our cry for justice simultaneously. And in all this, in humble anger and in love that perseveres, we also grow in patience. Because although Christ died, three days later he also rose to defeat death. That as Paul says in Romans 8, no weapon any enemy can throw at you can hold you down. But instead, we hear the victory calling that the enemy has been defeated and will be fully defeated when he returns again. We live in a time between, a tenuous place. And we look forward that even if death so does come upon us, that it won't be the final word. That when Christ returns, we too will know resurrection life. And one day God will make every single wrong right. When he does come again, he's not going to come as a lamb to be slaughtered. But he's going to come as a lion roaring in justice. And if we don't like that message, don't read the book of Revelation. Because as John continues to display, God will come to avenge the blood of his people, those who find forgiveness in his blood and find their identity and his care. And in John, and John sees this in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 5, he tells us what is to come. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, those who had been slain for Jesus, crying out, Hallelujah! which means praise to God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute. So the one who has chosen a path other than the bridegroom of Christ who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke for her goes up forever and ever. Utter destruction. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Until that day, we trust that God will do better things with our anger. Until that day, we own our anger instead of suppress it so that we might then give it back to him instead of trying to carry it ourselves. And it's only then 
that God will transform us into people of joy simultaneously of righteous anger. Only then will God be able to turn our anger to praise when we're honest and appropriately approaching injustice. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow, but it will be one day. And in the words of the prophet Coldplay, every tear will then be turned to a waterfall. Every siren will be transformed into a symphony. Don't we long for that? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. God, may we not be so naive to underestimate twisted anger and to ignore righteous anger. May you make us more into the image that we've been called to reflect. May we be so consumed with the good of who you are and your perfect design that anything outside of that does stir within us anger, not towards abuse, but calling for your righteous judgment. And we do so, God, praying and calling out simultaneously knowing that we're a part of the problem, knowing that we have no case to stand but by the blood of the cross of Jesus who took our judgment for us, for all who will submit to him and embrace him as our King and Savior and Lord. He is the true Son, the true King of the universe. God, guide us. Give us strength to own our anger. And also, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the strength to return it back to you. To come with transparency and so find freedom that you will always do better things with our anger than we will. And in the midst of all that, we rest rest in your mercy and look forward to your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.